Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gray Matter, the podcast from Greylock, where we share stories from company builders and business leaders. I'm Heather Mack, head of editorial at Greylock. Today, Greylock investor Seth Rosenberg leads a discussion on opportunities bringing AI into fintech. Seth spoke with fellow Greylock investor Reid Hoffman and Eric Gleiman, who is the CEO and founder of fintech startup Ramp. While machine learning has been around for decades, the recent advancements in large language models and the launch of ChatGPT has created a Cambrian explosion of applications and investor interest. AI has quickly become the enabling technology of our time, and it's impacting nearly every industry Greylock invests in. Financial services represents 25% of the global economy and has perhaps the most to gain from better prediction models. Even slight improvements in forecasting default rates on a loan or cash flow of a business can have dramatic economic impact. But so far, fintech has been left out of the conversation, partly because of the low margin for error in a regulated space. But these problems are being solved quickly. Just recently, Bloomberg announced Bloomberg GPT, a large language model trained on clean financial data. The upside of automated, intelligent, personalized, and more secure financial services with the help of AI is in reach. And Ramp has become a leader in the space. Seth spoke with Reed and Eric to better understand how AI is impacting every profession today and how it could further impact financial services. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience of founders, investors, developers, and technologists. You can watch a video of this interview on our YouTube channel, and you can read a transcript on our website. Both are linked in the show notes. Now here's Seth Rosenberg, Reid Hoffman, and Eric Gleiman. Hey everyone, welcome. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your Friday evening to spend some time together. The joke is that every fintech investor is now an AI investor, but you know, obviously at, at Greylock we're investing in fintech and AI, and we're also investing in the New York community. And so I thought this would be a good opportunity to bring everyone together. The space is moving so quickly. Right? And we're lucky to have people like Reed and Eric and Kevin and everyone else in this room who are kind of in the middle of this. So with that, I mean, I don't think either of you really need an intro. Obviously, Reed Hoffman, Eric Lyman, CEO and founder of Ramp. But let's get into it. So Reed, I wanted to start off by for you to just kind of introduce the topic. You've been investing in AI for a long time, but there seems to be this explosion over the last six months of investor interest, applications, so what's going on? Give us a kind of state, state of play. Look, macro frame is what's really going on here is the application of scale compute to create interesting computational artifacts. We began to see that in the earliest stages with things like uh, AlphaGo, AlphaZero, uh, and the Go results. Uh, by the way, the protein folding stuff comes more out of that lineage uh, than it does the large language models. And then people started showing OpenAI more specifically. There was some Google Brain, other kinds of things, part of some of our of our investments, start showing that you could do out of training out of like call it one to two trillion tokens of language data. This creates a amazing kind of artifact that doesn't just do the kind of like, oh look, write the Declaration of Independence as, as a sonnet or, you know, translate, um, you know, my poem into Chinese, all that kind of stuff, which of course it does, but also does coding, also does legal, also does medical. Um, also, uh, do, you know, can get a five on the biology AP exam and all the rest of this. And this is the path that we're on with this. And so that's why, generally speaking, it's under the term artificial intelligence, because most of these amazing things are things that we would previously have looked at as cognitive achievements. But part of the prediction is not just there will be continued to be an amazing set of things coming from AI. So another of Seth's and my partners, Sam, uh, Motomedi and I wrote an article last fall that said every professional will have a co-pilot 
that is between useful and essential within two to five years and define professional as you process information and do something on it. That's everybody in this room. Um, plus doctors, plus small business owners, plus you know, legal, plus, 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 you know, developers, et cetera. Uh, that's just from the large language models. Now, presume that what, what's happening there, and finance and all the rest, uh, presume that what's happening there um, isn't just going to, because you can think of what industry impact would be, is that's true of every professional, uh, every industry hires professionals, what that transformation looks like. But I think we will see, in addition to amazing things from large language models, I think we will see other techniques of the use of this kind of scale compute to create things. We'll see melds of them in various ways. You see some of that with Bing Chat going, okay, here's we got scale compute in server, which has uh, truth and identity and a bunch of other stuff, along with the large language models, and here's what revolutionizes the search uh, place. And, and you know, part of when uh, you know, Kevin, and, and who's here, and others, and, uh, and I were looking at this, we went, ooh, because uh, we saw all this in August of last year. It's always easy to predict the future when you're seeing it <laughs> with your own ads. Um, and we said, okay, let's get ready and start building stuff around it. And that's what's going on across AI. And so uh, it's extremely substantive. And what's more, we're just dipping our toes into this. Like this is not like, oh, it's a hype moment. It's a big thing. This is like, like that's like if you were saying, you know, back in 92, 1992, 1993, Oh yeah, the internet's really hyped right now. Oh yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's AI. Yeah, in a thank nutshell. you. Yeah. And you know, Reed is always an optimist, but in the last 12 months, there have been many partner meetings at Greylock where he's kind of rung the bell of, pay attention to this. This is is meaningful, and it's yeah. around the around the corner. And I think we're all seeing that happen. Right and then ChatGPT yeah. came out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, so, Eric. So, um, yeah, maybe just give us uh, an overview of. of you know what Ramp does, how everything that Reed just described is affecting your business and, and you know, fintech more broadly. Absolutely, um, and wonderful to be here. Uh, so Ramp is a finance automation platform. We're focused on functionally workflow and productivity related to movement of money. Um, we're known for operating the fastest growing corporate card in the US, bill payment software, expense management, accounting automation, and the like. And all of our products are designed with the intent of helping customers spend less money uh, most financial products are designed with the same or more and spend less time. And so really what we're focused on is workflows that companies need to run in order to um, disperse funds, close their books and everything in between. Um, I, I think the effect on AI from the business has been uh, frankly profound. Um, uh, from even the founding year of the company where there's simple things in expense management like you know, text a receipt, match it to the proper transaction is you know, very simple uh, machine learning. Uh, to today, when you think about um, accounting, ultimately these are generally accepted accounting principles. These are rules fundamentally of how transactions should be categorized and coded. And as you think about what are the patterns and how can you learn uh, from the 10, you know, 10,000 plus um, businesses, hundreds of thousands of folks learning, um, using um, you know, automating um, both keeping of records, risk management and assessment, um, to even go to market, um, even in the way that Ramp has been able to grow so efficiently, uh, has come down to embracing AI and um, in our sales characteristics and, and lead routing and mapping the like. And so I'm happy to go deep, but there's probably 10 core work streams all throughout the business that are leveraging in some way from um, you know, pattern matching to generative use cases as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So one interesting topic is, you know, and Reed, I know Sam Altman talks a lot about this, uh, where kind of the original narrative of AI was, um, 
you know, that it was going to automate more basic tasks, right? Like more uh, solvable problems like accounting or law. And, you know, the original thesis was that the last things to be automated were poets and photographers and graphic designers. It turns out that that's actually been the reverse, right? With, with at least this first wave of generative AI where, you know, the creativity gives the models a little bit of leeway for making mistakes. And, you know, at least the current state of these generative models, uh, you know, they don't lead to 100% accuracy. But in, in um, fields like healthcare or like financial services, 100% accuracy is required in many cases. And so what's your take on, um, you know, how fields like finance are going to be able to leverage these models? Well, uh, first, uh, premise of the question is not 100% correct uh, because there is no 100% human accuracy. Um, well, I presume most of the people in this room would know that if you were asked to have an average radiologist read your x-ray film or a trained AI, you should take the trained AI if it's an average one. If it's the best one or, be you know, like one of the best ones, great, take that. And better yet, take the two together. Um, so there is no such thing as, as human infallibility anywhere, including in finance. That's especially true. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So... Um, and so part of what we have to do is we have to kind of figure out, now part of the thing is we know how to hold human systems accountable and what accountability law looks like um, and what the error rate within human and, and what's acceptable when it's uh, person plus machine or when it's machine driven. Those will be relevant variables. Um, obviously, we worry about things like, you know, for example, AI applied to credit decisioning um, of do you have, you know, systematically biased data. Um, now, one of the benefits is to say, well, that becomes now a scientific problem, which you can then work on and fix, as opposed to the human judgment problem, where you say, well, we have that human judgment problem in how we're allocating uh, credit scores or credit worthiness or parole or everything else today in our human system. The machine system may start out looking like it's going to systematize the old one, but we can fix it so that we can move past that, especially in, in person plus machine. And that's, I think, one of the things you're going to see uh, with AI across a number of fields, including in finance and some of the early areas. I did publish a book last week called Impromptu uh, with GBD4 as a co-author where the central uh, thesis was it's not artificial intelligence, it's augmentation intelligence, right? And obviously in various ways it is also artificial intelligence, but it's the look at how you amplify people, like the co-pilot thing that I was saying earlier. And as an exemplar of that, um, now I did deploy my own personal team in helping me with this. We started writing the book in January, right? So with that, we got it out and there are physical copies. Now the physical copies are more print on demand from Amazon, but we got it out last week, <laughs> right? So that's the, that's the, um, uh, the kind of thing of the proof in the pudding with like think about how this augments human activity. Again, augmentation, amplification. That's, that's the pattern to be thinking as how you go forward. And of course, there's a whole bunch of stuff when you begin to think about FinTech, FinTech products, how you operate as a FinTech company, where this touches. Yeah, that makes sense. And Eric, I think you have a pretty similar point of view around, around this topic. Um, yeah, anything you'd add in terms of even just practically, like, um, you know, how, how you build guardrails when you're dealing with sensitive information and, and AI. 
Yeah, on, on the fintech side of it, I mean, I think it's just like a very unique industry where it's such a large sector of the economy, which, you know, as, as most of the world, and you know, again, I think it's accelerating, but went from no phones to flip phones to iPhones, people still have the same credit cards in their wallets, same bank accounts. And I think in a way, folks in this room know, um, you know, the fintech industry blew open over the past five years, and actually software-first orientation business models that can also move funds and get involved in workflows have started to spring up in a major way. So there's a lot of opportunities around it. When I think about some of the guardrails and patterns, like I, I agree with, with Reed of inherently there's always, you know, there's never been perfect when you think about underwriting, um, you know, best, best efforts. When you think about fraud, you take patterns to understand and prevent. Uh, and so I, well, I, I think perfection is, is, is actually quite rare. Um, I do think the co-pilot model is a powerful one when you're thinking about, for us, one of our core um, customers is um, is accountants, right? Where they need to be going and pattern matching and, and taking the learnings and bringing that back to augment and speed up is a very quick pattern. But also, most of customers, most employees are not accountants, don't know it, and being able to simplify and just as encoding over the past set of months, um, it's gone from you know primary language of coding from Python. To arguably, in a year or two, it may be English is the primary way. I think those same patterns you'll find in workplace productivity, expense management, accounting, vendor intelligence, um, you know, that and the like. And so I think it's, it's really thinking about where needs to be a high degree um, with you know, risk and underwriting you may not want um, in making all the decisioning you want to see and back test, and there's ways you can get at it heuristically. Um, whereas if you have uh, operational loops in, that co-pilot design pattern has been an emerging uh, first way to deal with it. Yeah. And actually, I, uh, not to put him on the spot, but I think uh, Kevin Scott, who's the CTO of Microsoft, who's here, who pointed out to me is like, oh, what's the largest programming language uh, in the world? English. Yeah, and um, Reed, I, I just want to double down on the, on the point you made around, um, you know, AI is not perfect, but neither are humans, and in many cases, AI, you know, actually performs better. Um, yes. How do, how do you think we deal with kind of the political, social, regulatory kind of uh, mindset shift? Right, like w one example is you know autonomous vehicles, right? Where, okay, you know, uh, autonomous vehicles are safer than humans, yet we need to, we're not necessarily socially comfortable with with autonomous vehicles making those mistakes. So, part of the reason why I would say that we need to own it as a society is, every year that we delay shifting to basically autonomous vehicles on the roads. We're killing 40,000 people. Blood's on our hands. So the important thing is to say it's actually worth saving. And it won't be, look, you still won't get below 1,000 or something. I don't know what the number is. It'll be a lot, but you'll save a ton of lives. And so you say, look, we have to solve these accountability issues. We have to solve these kinds of things. And by the way, it's very similar when you get to, you know, obviously, when you look at the press and government, there's all this buzz about, oh my God, AI, and it's going to have some job impacts, and we should slow it down, all the rest. And obviously, there's all this discussion about competition with China and so forth, which is important. But here's a way of making it tangible. Current GBD4, looking at it, line of sight to a AI doctor and an AI tutor on every cell phone. Deliverable, cheaply enough, that anyone who has a smartphone can have access. Every month you delay that, think about what the human cost of that delay is. Right? That's when I talk to government folks and say, think about it this way. 
<laughs> right? I'm not saying don't ignore data, don't, you know, large companies and ecosystems. It's not to say those are all irrelevant variables, but like one of the classic ways that democracy fails, a la climate and everything else is, what about children and grandchildren and all these, like all these other people? How do we help them? And this is part of, it literally is buildable today with the technology. It's just a question of how soon and how do we get there? Yeah. And yeah, doubling down on that kind of optimism, right? There, that's, yeah. I'm happy to be optimistic. Yeah. That's not optimism, yeah. that's truth. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I don't think you have to convince the yes. people in the room. Yes. Yeah. yes. But <laughs> um, um, I, there's a bunch of founders in this room, right? And also people who are like, who want to start companies, right? And so maybe th this would be starting with Eric. Um, you know, let's say, let's say you hadn't started Ramp, you're not the current CEO of Ramp. You, you see this kind of Cambrian explosion in, in AI and you see these advancements that, that, that Reed's describing. What are the most interesting opportunities? Like what type of startup would you build? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some sense that many of the companies behind AI or often focus on productivity in the workplace, I think in some sense reveals where many of these interesting use cases are. Put differently, I think when, when you look at a lot of knowledge work fundamentally based in data, where by default almost all of it is, is digital, if you can start to get involved in those workflows in both the movement of funds and, and, and a reduction of work and augmentation of those folks, I think there's a lot of interesting things. And so, um, look, I, I think one of the most interesting areas is frankly around um, accounting. Um, um, there's a lot, it is fundamentally pattern-based. Fun, there's a large set of folks who need to look um, um, at repeated data, they're both within a company and you can learn um, across. So there's data network, there's um, proprietary data, there's some network effects, there's clear patterns, um, and um, some personalization that needs to take place. And I think when you start to combine those, those efforts, I think accounting is a very interesting space. Um, I do think um, uh, in FinTech particularly, I think there's both the ability to um, you know, uh, have better risk assessment and fraud fighting, as well as uh, probably a great opportunity for fraudsters too. I wouldn't recommend it as a venture-funded business, but um, you know, when you think about a lot well, of it, it's not a U.S. Uh, domiciled one, but yes, it turns out these are big businesses, just yes. not based here. The Russian VCs that's, might be the yes. I think that's true. <laughs> it's uh, a lot of opportunity, yes. um, you know, for uh, you know when you can generate someone's uh, look, face, sound. Um, predict information about them. Uh, and so I think both sides around that's gonna be very significant opportunities. And last, just you know, secularly, even outside of, of AI, um, the, the notion that core financial service products, which once were you know, locked if you were a bank, you could store money and move money. Now those requirements, well, you need to be, be thoughtful about regulations and the effect it has. Um, you know, it's a much more competitive, and I think in a good way, open field that allows innovation that has happened in the rest of the world um, should no longer miss uh, financial services. And so I think it's quite exciting. Yep. And, and Reed, just along these lines, you know, there's a debate on, when to, whether, um, on, on whether startups or incumbents are kind of better positioned to take mm -hmm. advantage of these advancements in, in large models. Mm -hmm. um, what, what's your framework in terms of um, you know, which incumbents mm -hmm. are, are, are best positioned to take advantage of this wave and, and which opportunities are more available for, for new entrants? Um, well, look, the short answer is there's such a tsunami of stuff here. There is massive opportunity all around. 
So the usual kind of false dichotomy question is, is it only going to be you know, Microsoft, OpenAI, Google, and, everything, and, and, and too bad for everything else? Uh, no. Um, are there going to be things that these companies are going to dominate and do? Uh, yes. Um, but there's tons of room um, for other things. Um, among them, you know, like uh, last year um, with Mustafa Suleiman, former co-founder of DeepMind, venture partner at Greylock, uh, we co-founded Inflection. Unfortunately, I won't be able to talk much about Inflection. We'll, we will talk more about it in a month. Maybe we'll come back through town. Um, and um, but you know, and that's a startup opportunity. So you're putting uh, our money where our mouth is and doing this. And we have obviously a variety of, of great companies, Adept with David. Now, Cresta, Snorkel, et cetera, we have a whole stack of, of, of AI companies that are, um, you know, uh, invested in and going. So uh, now, to the more broad thing is, there's going to be a combination of, I think, two broad trends. One broad trend is the mega models, which are um, uh, super valuable and important, and there's a bunch of ways that will turn out to be super valuable and important, but if you take interesting areas like medicine, law, coding, and you say, okay, we're going to spend $500 million to make the larger, better model of this, and it's going to be 20% better. Well, in those, you're going to do it. We live in, we have this internet distribution, major distribution ends, and you're like, okay, the 20% better product will just naturally have, with nothing else, some network effects because everyone can get it through the internet, right, as a way of doing it. And so the, the people doing the really big models and putting that in, which will be a small N number of, and I don't think only... Microsoft, Google, OpenAI. I think there will be, you know, one to five others. Well, OpenAI is a good example of, you know, <laughs> yes. you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have predicted that five years ago. But, uh, yes. Or you actually would have because you did, you did invest in it. <laughs> yes. But most people wouldn't. Yeah. Yes, although the investment was from my foundation because mm -hmm. it was like, no, actually, in fact, this project for AGI is a very good thing. Mm -hmm. We had a discussion around the, the mm -hmm. partnership table of should we do this? And we're like, okay, no revenue plan, no go-to-market plan. <laughs> like, we have a responsibility or LPs to put something into that, that, <laughs> that is doing that. So, um, you know, in retrospect, if you could have said, hey, we look at now, mm -hmm. then we would have said, how much of it can we take? But, you know, that's always the easy part of investing is the 10-year look back. Um, and so, uh, but anyway, so, so there will be this large, um, uh, this large channel. And then there also will be a whole bunch of smaller models for all kinds of reasons, especially tuned, something in finance uh, that does a specific kind of accounting or fraud, other kinds of stuff, something that may run on your phone, da da da. And there will be a whole bunch of those things. So, for example, you know, uh, GBD3 was very expensive to run the last compute run on. You know, about a month ago, I saw something was maybe, you know, this is a swag, you know, 80% of GBD3 that, you know, cost $3 million to make. Right, and this is partially the, this other channel of stuff that will be happening: images, text, other kinds of things, and both of those will have great economic opportunities in them. And the thing that people a little bit too much mistake go to is it's just because I have a, an AI tech. It's like well, actually, there's a lot of what's your go-to-market, what's your business model, uh, how does that tune? Like, where, how do you competitively position? How do you create a moat? Is the motor network a factor? Is it something else? those will broadly still play into how you're thinking about how the tech disrupts things. So the short answer is that it's not only large incumbents, is not only startups, it's massively both. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. 
And you know, Eric, on this topic of you know large language models versus more fine-tuned models, I'm curious. You know, as it relates to Ramp, obviously you have a huge kind of workflow opportunity of just applying some of these large language models to, uh, to your existing product. You know, having better underwriting, etc. Um, are there any opportunities for you to also invest in some fine-tuned models and some of your own AI? I mean, I think it's a super interesting and present question for a yeah. lot of practitioners, people building startups. Of, do you bet on either A, the, the, the mega models, or B, um, more fine-tuned in-house development models? And um, frankly, so I'd be curious for, for your, your, your view and opinion on it. Um, you know, it, it, it seems to me, I think there's... The very unhelpful general answer is it depends. It depends. Fair <laughs> yes. enough. Yeah, it's... Uh, and I, I it's the more l detailed conversation that we'll get to maybe X or Y. You know. Fair enough. Yeah. It's uh, anyway. So I didn't mean to interrupt your answer. I just it's yes. It, it's totally. We'll we'll, uh, we'll dig in. But I think yeah. that's right. If like ultimately, um, uh, what do I think? So first, um, I think that for um, uh, a variety of use cases, like relying on like I wouldn't bet against of what's happening in the the mega models themselves to. Um, for the, the vast and general use cases, empowering more experienced generalized use cases using that. But there are a variety, I, like I would be thinking as, as folks building businesses of, are there proprietary, uh, is there proprietary data that's involved in uh, the workflow of your business? Uh, is there a data effect? Is there some level of personalization? And as you run it through, does the experience get better um, for, for every customer? And, and, and I think even back to, to some of the themes that, that we've been touching on, um, you know, there, there may be um, broad-based, um, you know, risk and underwriting that uh, once you start getting data, you can apply it and turn it on. But there may be even smaller use cases and loops of, uh, from tagging transactions to understanding more about specific merchants and learning from the set and sharing that back out um, that you can tune to, to your model and uh, I, I, I think makes sense for two models. I, I think one of the, the other questions specifically for finance, um, whereas most of these mega models have been trained um, primarily, um, whether it's, it's text, or images, in some cases, code. Um, I think that there are larger models being built, um, you know, on numbers, relationship to counting, and so I think the answer will evolve over time. Um, I think, in, in, in outside of the the training set of the mega models, I think the functional answer today is uh, training more locally, but being ready and thinking about is your stack prepared to make a switch and evaluate. Because I think that the just the um, the core infrastructure um, and code development is, is changing so rapidly. Um, and so building in a way where if you need to change things out, I think is important in this style of, of uh, architecture. Yep. Everything Eric said is exactly right. Here's how I'd also amplify, which is, if your theory of the game is a thin layer around the AI model, you better be playing on the trend of the large models. <laughs> right? Yep. And you better be anticipating the next large model. If that's not your theory, then the small model or the self-run model or whatever can itself go. But what happens is people go, well, I just put a thin model layer around it. You're like, well, the large models are going to blow you out of the water almost every single time, unless you just happen to be the, I'm trading the next large, the large models are back and I'm just trading to it. The next one, next one happens. Fine. That can be a strategy too. Um, but anyway, that would be a, another principle to add to it. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, one, one, uh, one of the final topics here, just I wanted to double, double click on, you know, obviously these, these models are very powerful. We, we talked about kind of the, the uh, risk for using these for fraud, phishing attacks. Um, I guess I'll, 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 I'll pass it to Reed. Um, 
you know, obviously we're investors in abnormal securities that's taking the other side of that, which is using AI to detect phishing attacks yes. and protect people. There's um, tons of security applications of this. And unfortunately, tons of offense applications too. Yeah, yeah. and so, yeah, I'm and curious. The Russian DC thing. Exactly, yes. yeah. <laughs> what are the vectors of offense, defense? How do we put guardrails around this technology, you know, as a society and then also as a business? Like, how, how should you think about the risk factors here? So one of the things I'll start with paradoxically is a defense on some of the criticism that OpenAI gets because people then say, well, it's OpenAI, it should be open source, et cetera. And people go, oh, the people who are releasing open source models. People say that. Yeah. Yes, people yeah, say right. that. I don't say that, yeah, yeah. but people say that. Mm -hmm. And you know, academics want it because they want access to the open source models and entrepreneurs want it because they want to be able to build on it. Go, By the way, I understand all this stuff. The problem is, is that an open source large language model of sufficient capability is a built-in phishing tool, right? Just to be really clear, it's like, here, you want to do cyber phishing? We have it. We could do it right now. And so um, <laughs> you have to be much more careful about uh, open sourcing these things. Um, I mean, for example, uh, to be you know, clear about something you know, last year, uh, Dolly from OpenAI was ready four months before it launched. And why? Because they took the extra four months and they said, well, uh, it could be used for these kind of bad things. It could be used for, uh, you know, uh, child sexual material. It could be used for revenge porn. It could be used. We don't want any of these use cases. We're going to spend the extra time to really make sure that these are very difficult to do with our tool. And by the way, part of the reason why they offer it through an API is we can be paying attention and we go, what's that? Let's fix that, <laughs> right, that is. And you get other companies that go, oh, we're heroes because we're releasing the open source models. And the open source models cause a notable increase in this kind of garbage, you know, distributed on the internet. And, you know, terrible impact for the stuff. And by the way, it's not, you know, there's financials, but a whole bunch of other stuff. So I'd say one, you know, kind of area is to say, well, we got to be much more thoughtful about the good outcomes, because by the way, doctor, tutor, like hugely important outcomes, you know, fraud prevention, cyber prevention. And so, um, and one of the other things is because it's being driven primarily by commercial entities versus governmental entities, all of them are going, oh, we don't do weapons, right? And by the way, a respectful, honorable position, <laughs> like, you know, but on the other hand, it's like, well, okay. There are going to be weapons coming out of this, and you need to understand them because you can't defend against them if you don't understand them. So, like, I've been going around to just about every lab that, that has a major effort and going, no, no, you should work on some weapon stuff, too. You should learn advanced security procedures. You shouldn't do, like, the weak-ass stuff like the NSA, which is a contractor can run out the door with them. That would be bad, <laughs> right? But you, should do, but you should figure that out because we should be in advance so that we're not vulnerable to them. Because there are real vulnerabilities. And of course, you know, when you see that as a venture firm like Greylock, we start going, oh, we should start investing in a lot of security companies and we should do this and this and this because we got to make this happen. And I think we say that every year regardless. Yes. But, yeah. <laughs> well, but maybe 10x this year. Yes. yes. Okay, I want to end, end this part of the discussion just on an optimistic note of. Um, um, I haven't been optimistic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is just the realism, <laughs> yes, the, yes. The, re the realist read. Yes. Um, but so let's project five years out, right? What impact will this technology have on just regular people? And what are you most optimistic for? I mean, I, I think um, it's funny, like m many of my 
competitors. Their founders were around the 1800s. They wore top hats. You know, they're, they're, uh, these organizations are not built thinking about uh, how much time you know, takes for people. They have all the time in the world, tens of thousands of employees, and time is functionally free. But it's not for most people. Right? And when I think about most um, you know, aspects of financial services, there's an incredible amount of busy work that's required, whether it's in applications, in reviews, uh, in submitting expense reports, in doing accounting, and doing procurement, figuring out what things cost. And if you collapse the amount of work it takes in order to get at more data and understand what's happening in the world and have the world's knowledge given to you more rapidly personalized to the problems you're solving, or have work done for you, it's incredibly freeing. Um, I mean, for us, I mean, one of the, the most common things that, that customers would say about Ramp is, um, I don't think about expense anymore, expense reports anymore. Um, uh, I have time actually to do the interesting strategic work, not just to go and collect receipts uh, and tag transactions. And I think that's a very uh, small and early sign of things to come. And so, uh, in many ways, allowing people to be more strategic, focused on higher level uh, work and more interesting and profound questions, I think is, uh, I, I think that's the potential. Yeah, I think, by the way, uh, excellently said, because I think it can transform not just the productivity, but also the joy and meaningfulness of the stuff. That's yes. actually one of the things that's frequently mistaken. I think you highlighted that very well. So with both my Greylock and Microsoft hats on, I kind of thought, this, thought about this through a lens of a company. And you said, okay, say you gave everyone the power as being 10x. And because, you know, the classic press dilemma, like, the, oh, my God, the people are going to be laid off and it's a disaster. It's like, okay, so let's walk through the departments. We got 10x salespeople. Are we going to lay off any salespeople? No. <laughs> 10x sales would be great. <laughs> let's take it. You know, uh, marketing people. Well, you might have different functions because the person who's doing the data entry, you know, this, like, like oh, yeah, we don't, those functions we don't need as much. But by the way, do you want less marketing? Do you, do you now have a competitive bar about how your marketing is? You probably have the same number of marketing people. Product, yeah, engineering, probably, you know, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Probably even accounting, because you now you can do all kinds of different kinds of accounting and yep. analysis of the business and other, a bunch of other stuff. Again, like marketing has changed. Now, it doesn't mean it's all roses and utopia, but like we've walked through a huge number of departments looking at this and gone, no, this is going to just be help, like helping these companies operate a whole lot better. It's not going to create any kind of, there'll be some workforce transition in terms of what skills and what are you focusing on. Customer service, you might have less, right? So it doesn't mean, again, zero. But if you look at it, the overall package, you go, actually, in fact, this is not a, this is a workforce transformation. And then, you know, when I'm talking to U.S. folks, you go, well, <laughs> what have we been doing for the last 20 years? We've been putting uh, customer service jobs in India and Philippines and so forth. You know, this is actually, in fact, not actually a big workforce problem. And so the optimistic thing is actually, in fact, I think this will be uh, productive. And I think part of the reason I didn't start where I normally start, which is also the joy of work will be a lot better. And by the way, I presume, given the tech and everything else, that everyone here has played with, with ChatGPT at least. Like, if you, if, 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 if you didn't stay up at night kind of going, oh, my God, I kind of don't understand you. <laughs> right. Like it's fun. It's interesting. <laughs> right. So you should, you should tell my girlfriend that. <laughs> I will. Maybe it's, it's normal. It's totally normal. Yeah. 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 Oh, that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That may cost you a bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. True. Thank yes. you, Mike. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> I was thinking maybe we'd open up to the to the audience for maybe just 
a couple questions, and then we can let everyone eat. Yeah. Um, anyone, anyone have any questions for, for Reed and Eric? So there was an uh, art gallery open here that you know about a few yes. days ago um, at one of the most prestigious the, galleries the in the Gugosia. world. And it was, um, it was a, a creator who had made all of the art presented uh, with Dolly too. And I think you, it would be fair to say that some of the most, uh, you know, it was a public art opening, anyone could walk in and see it. Um, and there were some of the most, you know, famous photographers and artists and film directors in the world there, and they were all depressed because they felt like this is, the, this is like, this is it, this is the beginning of the end. I mean, one of the photos was, you could have easily thought was a Diane Arbus, the twins photo, but, you know, a new work. So what do you have to say to those people? So uh, first, I, uh, a bit of history on that particular one, because it's kind of fun, and then, uh, then what I would say. So the history is uh, Bennett Miller, um, amazing uh, film director, um, Moneyball, et cetera, et cetera, a uh, friend of a number of ours, mine here, um, happened, to, uh, happened to be in town having lunch with Mustafa Suleiman, uh, my co-founder at Inflection. I said, oh, come join us. You, you know, you like this AI stuff. And so we were talking about what was happening. This was last year about image stuff. And I looked at Bennett and I went, you know, I think OpenAI would give you early access to, to Dolly. Or would you be interested in Bennett? Because he's inventive, but yes. And I went, okay, great. And I called Sam on my way to the airport and I was like, hey, uh, I kind of promised Bennett open access. Are you, are you cool with that? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, great. And a month later, Bennett shows me this amazing art. Stuff I couldn't have even thought that Dolly was capable of doing. And I was like, dude, this is really good. We gotta show it to the open AI people. I don't think they have any. Because part of what's happening with, with this, these, you know, like hundreds of billion parameter models is turn, turning computer science into natural science, right? Like, it's like, like who knew you could do this stuff and you unleash someone creative doing it. And so, you know, it was like, okay, and we did that and that was all great and ends up at the Gugosian. Now, um, given that I haven't, that we are on camera and I haven't said to this person, I was talking to a, a musician um, last July and I said, um, uh, I, uh, we have a program at OpenAI that can either give me an original X, like a Celine Dion, et cetera, and create that song, or can, can give 15 seconds of it and create the rest. I know that right now you're feeling terrified, bad, right? You're like, holy shit, my job is done. Here is why I think it should excite your creativity, because you can go do that, and then when it plays out your four-minute bit, you can go, Oh, the spit between second 25 and 35, that's really good. And the spit between a minute 30 and, and a minute 48, that's really good. And I'm going to take that and make something a lot better. This can be a tool for amplifying me, right? Yes, you have to learn the new tool. That's the transformation. That's the, so yes, if you're like, I refuse. I'm, I'm really good. I'm just an expert now, and I don't need any new tools. OK, world's a little harder now <laughs> right? for that. But if you go, oh my God, I could use this tool, and I, because by the way, who are these people? They have amazing artistic sense. Like, for example, part of what Bennett taught me was what is Bennett's like, genius is that he thinks intensely visually. As a director, now we're giving him the tools, I go type it all in here, and he can also then create art. Because he does it. Well, it's because he's, he's a genius at that stuff, right? It's an amplifier. 
And that's the thing. So yes, they have to learn the tools. And they go, well, I don't want to learn the tools. Well, well, it's like, look, I drive a horse and buggy, and I don't want to learn the car. OK, that's a choice, <laughs> right? But go learn the car. Like, do that. That's what the general answer is. That is pretty cool to see creative minds. Yes. These tools in, in the hands of creative minds. I had that's, no yeah. clue. By the way, so it's at the Gagosian. Go see it. Yeah. I, I had no clue until Ben went, oh, let me show you a few things. And I was like, <laughs> holy crawly. <laughs> Maybe we'll do, how are we doing for time? One more, one, two more questions? This question's for Reed. So, uh, you know, as the founder of one of the foundation model companies, we're out, like, Stanford two weeks ago. They took 50,000 input-output pairs from uh, a sub-175 billion parameter model from OpenAI. Yes. And they fine-tuned um, a 13 billion parameter model off of it. It costs, like, $600, and it's yes. as good as the OpenAI model. Yes. How do you view modes evolving now that anyone can just replicate your state-of-the-art model, just having access to it, not the architect or anything, just the inputs and outputs? Very deep question. Yeah. Uh, great question, and the fundamental answer is it's unknown, and we're discovering it, right? There is no simple answer to that question. Um, there will be some answers to that question. It just, we that, here's this huge ocean, and I got a ship, and I'm gonna launch it. <laughs> we're like, where does it lead, and what does it do? Now, a little bit to the earlier point is that there are still a bunch of things that still we have learned in software entrepreneurship about well, actually, in fact, you get kind of certain kinds of system integration. You have a good go-to-market, virality, something else. Uh, you have a, uh, a data set, stuff that you were talking about earlier. Things that say, oh, that gives me that. Like, it isn't that all of the old wisdom about entrepreneurship and software entrepreneurship has just been dumped off the side of the boat, <laughs> right? Now you have to, it's a, it's a technological platform change that when I say it's bigger than any other, it's because it's the crescendo. You can't have it without the internet. You can't have it without mobile. You can't have it without cloud. It takes all of those and amplifies them. And that's why it's completely changing the game, all these things. So yes, but that doesn't mean that the old business model, the old business wisdom of kind of like, all of those folks, all of those traits are still relevant, but they're transforming and we're all figuring out well, which ones matter in which ways now. So it was a great question for everybody. Yeah, thanks for that. Just like further that question on this idea of like, will LLMs just be commoditized? Mm -hmm. Is first mover advantage just so much more important now? Because, and, and when OpenAI released the plugins today, I thought that was brilliant. Because now it's like, that's first, ChatGPT was becoming commoditized anyway. And now it's like, oh, that's interesting. Now they have plugins. That's going to be hard for everyone else to get plugins. So I agree with that idea of like traditional model still applies. Uh, exactly. And, and the short answer is, some of it, this is the reason why it's a work in progress. Some of it will be completely commoditized. Will be kind of like it's, it's, it's the cost of the compute, electricity, et cetera, et cetera, and you can get it from three or four different players, and it's kind of like, which one do you buy? Well, you know, I like this soft drink versus that soft drink, you know, kind of thing. But which ways do you make it non-commodity, and how do you do that? Maybe some of it's in the tech, maybe some of it's in the business. Maybe some, like classic is a network of developers doing plugins. That's the classic play. So of course, and you know, uh, uh, I you know, have the privilege and honor of working with the OpenAI team. They're very smart. <laughs> All right, I think let's break there, but thank you, Reed. Thank you, Eric. I really yes. appreciate you taking the time. Yeah.
and thank all of you to coming to our dinner on Friday night. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you have great conversations with the people here. And yeah, enjoy the evening. That concludes this episode of Gray Matter. You can watch a video of this interview on our YouTube channel, and you can read a transcript on our website. Both are linked in the show notes. And if you aren't already a subscriber to Gray Matter, you can sign up wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Heather Mack. Thanks for listening.